Disclosure. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hello, everyone. It is Ben Keating on a Monday afternoon, just uh, getting you another podcast here. So this most recent one I did last week with Lex Sokolin. He is the head economist at Consensus, which is a blockchain technology company that focuses primarily on the Ethereum blockchain. But we cover a lot of ground. So Lex's background is financial services across the board. He started in an interesting place at Lehman Brothers during the 2008 collapse, so saw a lot there. And then that really informed his journey into robo-advisory and being one of the first robo-advisors out on the market. He did that for a number of years and then did some VC stuff and then ultimately found his way into blockchain at Consensus. So super excited for this. Hope you guys enjoy it. Let's go. Hello, Lex. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. So real quick, um, Ben here again with another Wealth Crypto podcast. And today we have Z- uh, on Lex Sokolin. He is the head economist at Consensus, which is, I guess I would say, a blockchain technology company at its core, right? Um, so maybe, Lex, if you could just give you know my listeners a quick little intro about who you are, what consensus is, and then maybe how you guys interact with the wealth management space and we can go from there. Sure. Um, uh, it is impossible for me to do anything briefly, so I'll probably uh, <laughs> not, not, not do what you asked. Uh, so consensus is a uh, blockchain software company that is at the heart of web three. Um, and it's impossible to kind of not not get into lingo in the space, but let's just say we um, do two core things. The first thing we do is we help people um, interact with um, uh, with decentralized protocols, things like Ethereum, Arbitrum, uh, and other chains, Polygon, and mm-hmm. we do that through um, a wallet called MetaMask. Yep. which has about 30 million uh, monthly average users. Um, so you can, you can think of that not just as a brokerage app for, uh, for assets, but as the browser for applications on Web3. Mm-hmm. So helping people use it. And then the other, um, the other motion that the company has is helping uh, builders, developers, entrepreneurs, financial institutions. So more of a beta, beta um, more of an enabling motion, let's put it that way. Um, and so we help uh, technically minded um, counterparts stand up their own applications, protocols, uh, experiences, uh, tokens, whatever it is within this new environment, right? So on the one hand, you bring users and demand. And on the other hand, you're bringing applications and supply. You can almost use um, the Apple iOS as, um, as an analogy, right? Where you have... Sure. Apple is selling the phone, which is how you access that ecosystem. And then you've got developers who build into it. And Web3 is very, you know, has, has a similar concept, except the, the ecosystem is open source and, and much more open than 
kind of a closed loop um, technology company. So that's what Consensus is. Um, it got its start at the birth of Ethereum. Um, the, one of the founders of Ethereum, after the the launch of the network, um, used the funding that that uh, accrued uh, and set up Consensus to commercialize the network and to build uh, developer tooling and all sorts of things. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the financial sector in lots of different places. Uh, one of the more relevant ones, I would say, probably these day, these days, is around MetaMask Institutional, which is helping more traditional firms interact or find ways for th- their constituents to interact with again this this ecosystem of stuff of, mm-hmm. of new stuff that's that's going on. Um, and then you know, so that's that's consensus. Um, I'm the head economist there, so uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about systems, people, interactions, money, finance, and so on. Uh, before that, I was the chief marketing officer at the company, and before that, I, I ran a product division that was kind of marrying fintech with decentralized finance and trying to commercialize a lot of digital assets. Um, so I and I've been at the company for a little bit over three years now. Um, and then if you rewind a little bit further in my background, um, I, I started a robo-advisor in 2009 um, as part of the kind of Betterment Wealthfront cohort. It was called Nestec Wealth, um, which then became Advisor Engine, uh, which is a, a wealth tech platform that is now part of, um, I think Franklin Templeton bought us um, in, okay. around 2019. Um, so we raised 50 million from Wisdom Tree and you know, bought Juncture and did private label robo advice around 2013, 2014. So I I love the advisory space um, and and I'm very interested in personal finance and the digital interfaces around personal finance. Um, But I also, you know, find the lack of imagination in wealth tech um, very uh, stark. Uh, And so, you know, I've, I've chosen to get further out onto the extreme edges of, um, of what fintech and and um, technology looks like for our sector. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there's there's definitely a lot there to kind of unpack. Um, I I actually listened to your podcast I think recently on decent people, and you kind of got into your background about. So for those who don't know, Lex started at uh, well, I guess we'll just say Lehman Brothers right in the crash, right? And on that podcast, you kind of mentioned you got a little kind of, I guess, maybe jaded with how traditional financial services worked and that, if I'm reiterating this correctly, spawned kind of your interest in these interfaces around creating technology better, which led to this robo-advisor experience, right? Would you say that's fair? Yeah, you know, and it, it wasn't, I wouldn't say that it was the, the the bankruptcy or the collapse per se that was the motivation for the robo-advisor um, experience. You know, and like talking about it now, it's also extremely obvious and so boring. You know, like you used to provide advice through a branch and now you provide advice through a phone. You used to bank through a branch. Now you bank through a phone. You used to borrow mm-hmm. through a branch. Now you borrow through a phone. There's nothing to discuss. Like yeah. all of the emotions that people used to have are so uninteresting and irrelevant. Like it's just human behavior changes where the attention has gone changes uh, Apple is worth 2.3 trillion. Deutsche Bank is worth 11 billion. You know the yeah. end. Um, but I, if if I do rewind back to it and kind of pause on um, what was going on 
you know, it was, it was like Facebook and other companies, Google, were starting to incorporate software into browsers. Mm-hmm. So you were going from browser of, of a software running on your computer to software running inside of browsers. And the software was very janky, like it didn't do very much. Yeah. Um, but it was interactive and you could click on buttons and things would happen and like cloud was going on. And, you know, mint.com built that beautiful personal right. finance dashboard. And, yeah, and so, you know, as a, as a person who at the time had built a lot of websites and I did a lot of graphic design and, and was focused on technology, I was coming out of Lehman that had a, a pretty large wealth management business. So I was in a strategy group for a um, $350 billion AUM business, half yeah. half wealth, half institutional, you know, uh, putting out about 700 million of revenue, uh, sales force, i.e. advisor force of about 400 people. Uh, and, you know, so high net worth yeah. going after, going after that market. And I ran a lot of spreadsheets for that business to optimize revenue as an analyst. And one of the projects I remember was called the custody fee project. And it was there because we, we, in, in, in this wealth business had a problem. And the problem was small accounts are bad and we want to fire them, but we can't. Yeah. Um, so why are small accounts bad? Like, whose, really? fault is, whose fault is it that small accounts are bad? It is the business's fault and it is the fault of the expensive people who are not doing their job end of the day. Small accounts are bad because your business is designed, you know, like uh, a, a, a coal train that can't go on the road. It's, it's a poorly designed object. Um, nonetheless, um, you know, so small accounts are bad. We need better profitability. Let's, let's fire our, let's, let's figure out a way to fire our clients. So I ran the spreadsheet for, um, to figure out the minimum price that you would, you would charge people in order to get rid of them. And, uh, it was $5,000, you know, so $5,000 would get rid of like the, the bottom quarter or something of thousands of accounts that we didn't want so that we wouldn't have to take our calls and help them actually live a good life. Mm -hmm. Um, and I felt so skeezy. I just felt bad, yeah. you know, because I also saw what people were doing in the office and what they were doing in the office was, um, and this is reductive and it's going to upset many financial advisors, I'm sure, but they were, they were coming in and they were going to their desks and they were getting on the phone with clients and they would talk to them and they would write things down in their notepad and then they would hang up the phone and then they would open up their computer they would log into a portfolio management software or you know an asset allocation modeling software and into their CRM and they would look down at their notebook and it would take them you know 3 hours to copy the information from their handwriting into software on their computer mm-hmm. that cost Lehman hundreds of millions to build bespoke software because of course we wouldn't buy it yeah. from a best in class provider because yeah. no reason um and and then they would spend their day entering that in and then they would take that and then they would print it out. They would print it out on a color printer and they would pay $25 to bind the thing in plastic because plastic is fancy and yeah. is for some reason important to somebody. Yep. And then they would go and they would call back the person they talked to so that they could drag that person into an office that cost millions and millions of dollars to a lunch that in shared expenses to the firm was hundreds of dollars for a fish. And then they would give that person who came into the office a plastic binder of software 
print out based on the scribbles they've done. And this is absurd and should be annihilated. I mean, yeah. it is offensive to me in retrospect, you know, and it is the core of so many businesses and people will say it's the human touch and so on, but it's, that is not it. That is doing things so manually and so inefficiently that the people who actually need financial advice, you are firing with a pretend $5,000 fee. And so I would say that was, that was my motivation yeah. <laughs> because, because at the time, right, it was coming out of 2008, everybody's parents lost their retirement, people became unemployed, actual good financial advice would have saved so many people and their anxieties and heartaches. And I was like, just the software is on the computer and these websites are interactive. So Every single person who is on the $5,000 minimum in, in custody list should just be using that software directly, you know, and, and at the time you started having um, <clears throat> freemium models for, for websites, things like, um, you know, the Flickr and so on, where the usage of Flickr would be free. You got millions of people using it for free. Yeah. And then, you know, some portion of people who are ex advanced users would pay Flickr you know, photo hosting fees or whatever, other fees on top. Yeah. And so to me, these two things kind of became obvious where like on the one hand, software has no marginal cost. So you build the software into the into into websites and into the cloud and you create a self-serve offering to yeah. people who are fired by companies like, like the one I worked at. Um, and then some of those people will need more advanced help. And so yeah. what do you do in that case? Well, it's the personal capital model. Um, and, and that is either add on the emotional component of human advice, where you add on higher quality investment recommendation, or you add on treasury and financial planning, or, um, you know, uh, trust in estates, things of that nature that, that actually require the advisor to do, um, to do things that software can't, yeah. um, you know, and, and so that's, that's what pulled me into it. You know, I, it was, it was seeing the direction the web was moving and then just sort of this, like, just deep, I think, generational maybe reaction to, to to the choices that people were making or that businesses were making, not to improve themselves, but to create cash cows. And, and the result of which was fewer people actually having a good financial experience. Yeah. <laughs> Again, there, there's a lot to kind of unpack there for sure. Um, so maybe to kind of summarize that back, you know, you go through Lehman and you see all these, you know, old school ways of doing things, I guess, just to put it that way. And it gives you the idea that most of this can go away, leads to robo advisors. So where, where do we go from here? So like robo advisors, you know, everyone's got them now. You kind of alluded to the fact that, um, what was it? Advisor engine was basically white label robo advisors for people who want to spin one up. Right. Um, and that model is now there everyone's got a robo of some sort right with varying degrees of you know success i don't know how many people use wells fargo's robo advisor right but um it's there so where does where does blockchain and web3 and crypto take sort of the wealth management relationship yeah. further yeah so i th i think these i think the answers are are um I've been obsessed with this stuff for a while, and I, I think the answers are actually pretty straightforward. You know, so um, 
the the advisor engine bet was to say not not only is it robo advice that people want for their small accounts um but the the portfolio management trading rebalancing financial planning crm like that whole stack that investnet or orion does that should be designed from the perspective of digital customer engagement mm-hmm. so it's like robo advisor dna inside of it and then you build out the rest you don't build it as a cockpit for a mechanic you know you build it first for with the idea that the whole thing's going to be automated and and buzzing along and you you just put a lot more of it into software and then the value proposition is okay how do you how do you have better client engagement through the technology and again this this stuff i think is very mainstream today and and yeah. very clear right like um client portal video and so on and so forth um but i think for, for us that was the the core of the company and coming out of that i had kind of this this also like it it felt that not that things weren't done but like it it wasn't an idea that was kind of big enough because what what it really does as i said is it changes just the distribution of financial product without changing anything underneath it so um we're going from a branch to a phone or, or you know, a website. Mm-hmm. So, so you're going, let's say you want to buy uh, a sandwich by going to a store, or if you want to order it through Uber Eats, the sandwich is the same. The, 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 the product is the same, but the distribution is different. It's mm-hmm. digital distribution instead of yeah physical distribution and everything, all of it, everything today is digital distribution. There's no part of the value chain, Amazon, anything you touch is digital distribution, right? You don't even hail a cab with your hand anymore. It's, it's just so deep in there. So that's nice. And, but, but it, um, you're still getting the same thing, getting the same thing. And so, you know, the difference between, digital distribution by Google of websites of human knowledge versus um, digital distribution of physical books is pretty profound. Mm-hmm. The difference between um, digital distribution of cassette tapes and CD-ROMs, the first Netflix model, yeah, and digital distribution of natively digitally manufactured content, uh, content entirely different. Right. So the thing that is scotch tape on the old thing dies, irrelevant, goes away. The thing that is actually distributing something that's manufactured in the medium that the distribution connects to. In in other words, the thing has to be digitally manufactured, not just digitally distributed. Right. So Spotify, not of CD-ROMs, but of of streaming music. Okay. Uh, So that gets us to where we are with finance. Finance finance doesn't lead it tends to follow except for what's going on with with crypto but there's kind of a reason for that so digital manufacturing of financial products um it is hard to find that you know like because it for, for many very good reasons um people will say core core banking portfolio management you know custodians exchanges that's all technology well sure that's true, but you know, there's a difference between like electronic and digital. Um, you know, electronic trading isn't the same thing as like cloud, right? Like there, there's so the 
but the things get to scale, they get really big, and then you can't change the engines. You can't change, you can't change how the factory makes the product. Yeah. And further, the regulatory um, and compliance and generally sort of like cultural aspect that sits on top of the manufacturing is, is very human through and through. So you actually, you, you know, you can do as much innovation as you want by let's take something as, as um, different as using artificial intelligence to underwrite digital loans. So I want, instead of, instead of getting my mortgage from a mortgage broker, I want to get it through a five second scan of my bank account activity using machine learning. Yeah. Right? Like in most cases, I want the robot. The robot is, is nicer. It's better. It's faster. It's more, it knows more. It makes better decisions. Yeah. But the regulator is going to say, well, what if the robot's racist because there's bias in the data? And also how is the robot making its underwriting decisions? Tell yeah. me how the black box work. And the scientists will say, we have no idea. It's, it's, you know, it's math at scale for very complex stuff. And, and, so, and then the answer is, okay, well, your robot can't actually sure. be engaged in financial services. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so you know, that's the example using something like AI, which would manufacture financial products um, automatically. And then, but, but then you get to crypto. And this is where, for me, there was, it was like a light bulb moment where Ethereum launched in 2016. Um, in 2017, I was uh, I was a partner at an equity research firm focused on 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 like innovation, and I was really trying to figure out these themes for myself and get my head a little bit out of wealth management and trying to figure out like yeah. what's this fundamental thing. And like I, I saw Ethereum, and then I saw on the Ethereum ecosystem first dozens, and then hundreds, and then thousands of coins being launched. Yeah. And they all looked like venture startup decks to me. And I had spent, you know, a bunch of time in the early stage ecosystem and the sort of like feeling that people have about fraud and scam. Like if you spend enough time in the early stage ecosystem, you just understand that's sort of, yeah, you that, that's the quality of the people for a while. You know, yeah. um, that's, that's not a bug. That's sort of a feature. And I was like, th there's capital formation people are building businesses, people are building economies and people, people are building financial products on this completely alien architecture. It doesn't use any portfolio management system, any Schwab or Fidelity CSV overnight batch file. It doesn't use any trade order routing, anything. It is entirely differently designed. And in the year that it, it, it is live, it has managed to create thousands of people trying to build businesses and, and new things. Mm -hmm. And that thing crashed. And then another wave came, you sure. know, and yeah. the next wave was a lot more real. It had software on it. The software was yeah. functional. It was across various financial industries and so on. Anyway, that all to say, and I can open this up more, but the, sh the short view that I have is blockchains are there to manufacture digital financial products and they require nothing from the old world they really don't they, yeah. you know they, they require uh the user and the and and the user's belief and value and to put labor into this new system rather than a different system yeah but from the perspective of like the stack the software that people use 
Like it requires nothing from any broker dealer or any exchange or any software company or any trade order routing system or anything. It yeah. is all being built de novo and it is modern 2022 tech. Sure. It's janky, but it, I mean, to me, this is the amazing thing. So, you know, you already have digital distribution sitting there. You have Robinhood, Revolut, Coinbase, you know, eToro, M1 with, with, millions and millions of people, as much penetration as they can get. Sure. And now you've got the financial products that are digitally native that are fractional by default yeah. that trade within, you know, within a couple of seconds, the trade settles yeah. to finality without any, anything, Swift. Yeah. <laughs> nothing, no Swift, but also, you know, like if you're a financial advisor, you, you know what it's like to log into Schwab and put a trade in. Like, yeah, nothing actually moves until overnight the the badge happens. And God forbid you need like a client authorization to move money. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 truly fantastical, right? And so it, it's the right architecture, I think, for the the next generation emergent financial system. And then you've got digital distribution. And so I think where we are now is trying to figure out how how do how does the crypto asset class let's call it that how does the value that's created in this ecosystem that moves around using uh, crypto market structure and economic structure as well how does it does it and if and if it does how does it plug back into uh, traditional software traditional distribution channels and the workflows of um, of people engaged in the industry gotcha. and and you can, you know, you can have a, you can have a very narrow view, and then you can have a broad view. And so the narrow view is: um, you're a financial advisor. Your client has some amount of money. Um, your portfolio is to put it, you know, fifty percent in equities, thirty-five percent into fixed income, and then the rest you split between commodities, real estate, and alternatives. Right. And you tilt that thing around. And so the, the narrow answer is, okay, well, you squeeze in 10% of crypto assets. And maybe that's going to take a decade. But if the things I'm saying are just like too much, blah, 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 like you can just reduce it to at some point, your clients will end up going from 1% in crypto to maybe 10%. And that's going to be economic exposure. And that's right. And you can think of it as just an asset class. Yeah, there's there's much longer, deeper kind of answers that are that are detailed, but that that go to the nature of where people work and how value is created. But um, I'll I'll pause here because I know I've I've been going on for a while. Yeah, no. Um, what I was kind of thinking about during all that is I understand the point about you know digitally native for digital assets and you know. It, it needs to be created there for it to like really have the effect that we want it to. Um, but, I, but I wonder where, like, if I'm just a, you know, traditional advisor in, you know, some town in America, I've got, you know, my admin and a couple hundred million and maybe a junior advisor, like what, like what, if, if I care, I guess is maybe a good way to say this. Like if I care about this digital transformation of wealth management along these, you know, blockchain rails and, um, what the next stage of the advice relationship looks like, like what, what can I be doing? What should I be looking for in 
you know, maybe insulating myself and my business from digital disruption. Like I remember when robos came out, everyone was thinking robos are going to kill the traditional advisor relationship. And I think we can say that that didn't happen. Um, but you know, maybe there's a place where, well, I, I don't know, like, I guess I'm kind of rambling now too. Cause like one of, one of my personal takes about wealth management is only so many people actually really care to do it on their own. Right. And if we enable people to do it digitally and it's really easy, like how many people are actually going to do that? Right. Like take it upon themselves to complete the task day to day to, you know, get their estate plan done, get the trust done, get, you know, their investment accounts set up. How many people are actually going to do that? Even if it is as easy as just, you know, buying something from the app store, like where, where does, I guess that advice relationship go? Where does the actual human element of the advisor relationship go in this, um, you know, web three wealth tech world? Like, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a, it's a complicated question because there are, um, because none of this is static, right? So if I wanted, for example, to tell us, I can, well, what's, what's the valuable thing to say? So the first thing is what kind of advice, what kind of business are you running as an advisor? So, and, and it's fine. There's no wrong answer. Some people run a lifestyle business yeah, and they just want to work with the types of clients that they like with whom they have personal rapport and they want to give those clients the things that the advisor is comfortable doing. You know, they're, they're good at this particular way of investing. They generate good returns, the end. And they're not curious and that's okay. You know, some advisors, um, want are, are late in their career, they want to sell the business or they want to position it or they want to cash cow it or whatever. Fantastic. Great. Um, others are early on in their business journey. So for them, they need to compete to win business and to compete, um, you need to grow. And I think if you want to grow, you should be in places where there's demand that's unmet. So what is the unmet demand? Okay, so let's look at people who, then you look at the client side. Some people don't have any crypto, are scared of it, but inevitably will want exposure because it will be prudent to have exposure to the asset class. Yeah. You know, in the way that in the 70s and 80s, like small cap was seen as something exotic yeah. and it was, uh, what was it, DFA that brought it in, right? Like similarly, um, the crypto asset class or hedge funds in the early 2000s, right? Alts and alternatives, sure, private equity yeah. hedge funds. Yeah. You know, my view, and I could be wrong and that's okay, but my view is this is an asset class. And for the advisor that doesn't like crypto and the client that doesn't like crypto, even for them, they're going to have a 5% allocation. And the way they're going to do it is that their portfolio management system is just going to plug in whatever, a wisdom tree ETF or a BlackRock crypto ETF. And that's as yeah. far as they're going to go, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alternately, you can look at a different scenario where the client is actually wealthy because they've been in the crypto space. So the client holds a lot of crypto. And yeah. so there are, first of all, there are, there are, there are people of this type. <laughs> you know, and so if you're, if you're a person who wants to grow, maybe you should advise people of this type because, yeah. again, it's new wealth. It's you know, their life events and so on. And now imagine you're showing up 
with a paper, with a plastic bound uh, printout of pie charts to a person who made their money in crypto saying crypto is bad for you because it's risky. What you should really do is buy some U.S. government bonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not going to grow your business because you don't understand your audience. It's the wrong point. So, yeah. So you need to understand your audience. If you want to be a financial advisor to a person who is passionate about the space and understands where the value creation comes from, you need to be smarter than your client, right? If you know more about whatever it is, modern portfolio theory or efficient frontiers or um, mean variance optimization than the average person, then similarly, you need to know more about DeFi protocols and crypto economics and token engineering and NFTs and communities. And you need to be present there more than the person who's holding and engaging in Web3. And so um, that's an education push. There, you know, There's an infrastructure question associated with it, but I think that the infrastructure question is already being solved. Like people are plugging stuff in. Um, so to just jump in there real fast, it sounds like the, it's, it kind of sounds like just getting advisors educated on the space and what's available to them for their clients and how it fits into the plan is kind of where you're going here. Am I catching that? Yeah. And, and, you know, getting advisors educated makes advisors into a passive student of things. Um, I think advisors that will be, I think the people who will have interest, curiosity, and mastery are the people who are going to capture the demand. Yeah. Because it, it's not, it's not going to work to, you can't come into a space and then not, not kind of respect it on its own terms. Sure. Um, right. Sure. So, um, so I, I think people need to become experts in it um, and really understand what the things are and what the, in the same way that if you're an advisor and let's say you're doing your, your asset allocation is tactical and you need to understand and, and you tilted risk on risk off, right? Yeah. Not everybody does this. Some people do it. And if you're going to do risk on risk off, then you should under, understand the Federal Reserve and inflation and interest rates and employment. And so when you meet your client, you might say, look, we are risk off right now because every, every you know, like all, all the macro indicators are going in this direction and, and we don't feel good about it. And we think in 12 months, blah, blah, blah. Right. So you need to understand some macro economy. If your approach requires you to apply that to people's more active management. Yeah. So in, in the crypto world, similarly, you need to understand the mechanics of the, of the things you're talking about. Um, like intuitively in the same way that you would understand why a central bank would buy or sell treasuries. Sure. You, you would need to understand why a protocol how they would issue or burn, how they would how they would make mint mint money, or how would they emit uh, tokens? How they would burn tokens? What staking is like? You, you need to understand these words and and likely engage with them. Sure. But again, that's that's for the people that want to grow in this space, and not everybody yeah. does. And I think the the last bit is just is is to acknowledge that YouTube is full of financial advisors in the crypto space. Yeah. The SEC doesn't like them because they're not licensed and they're probably giving bad financial advice, but there are people who are technically with, with millions. Yeah. They're certainly not fiduciaries, but well, yeah. you know, like the, the, the human need for advice going to the core value of like, you're actually there for somebody, you're getting them through a difficult 
market environment. You're giving them advice on how to structure their portfolio and how to organize their life and how to budget. Like this demand is there. It exists. It just so happens that people are getting it from like random YouTube strangers who are turning into like influencers. Sure. Yeah. You know? And so, so you, you can see that the demand is there, but I think advisors have to think about, again, just, just treating, treating their audience on the terms in, in which their audience thinks. Sure. Um, you know, and again, I've gone into the side of it, which is you're an advisor that wants to grow. You have lots of curiosity about the space. You want the clients that are, that are getting wealthy in crypto and that are building value here. And you want to engage with the stuff. The, the other example still holds where neither you're not interested and your client's not interested. And then just over time, you have a 5% allocation to an ETF. You know, like yeah. that is that, that these are just separate paths. And yeah. I don't want to give color to both of them. Yeah, no. Um, I think that makes sense. Like what I'm kind of hearing is, I guess, generally kind of stick to your lane, right? Like I, I so I'm a former advisor myself. I, I grew up in the wirehouses and I always thought it was a little bit crazy that people could hold themselves out as planners and then also just be day trading stocks. And it's like, there's, to your point earlier, if you want to be a master of something, you can't be masters of both, right? Like, um, so I guess what I'm hearing from this is that advisors want, however they feel about it or not, is more just, you know, know you and your clients and your practice and find the solutions that fit for whatever it is that you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, like, if you, if you take the planning approach to somebody who is just learning a new asset class, honestly, yeah. and, and learning it bottoms up as opposed to like a caricature of it. Sure. Um, you know, and because it doesn't matter what the source of wealth is for somebody, like if you're building out a financial plan for them, then you're going to talk about their diversification and their purchases and mm -hmm. what they're going to do and for how long and so on. Right. That, that doesn't change no matter kind of what, where they've come from. Um, and I think you can also you know, there's like value leaks, like your expectations about projected returns are also going to be impacted by what it is that you're investing clients into. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, I value generation is not happening in the public markets for companies. By the time companies get to the public markets, early stage value is gone. Yeah things are going public at 50 billion. Yeah. I mean, it's, there is, there's not that there's nothing to do, like for sure, you know, 5% growth for large caps with a tilt to value. Fantastic. But you're not, yeah. you're not getting, you're not getting exposure to the real economy. And so um, I think even for somebody who's a planner, who's focused on lifestyle or focused on structuring, like understanding what returns you can hit and what those return profiles are and why they function as they do, I think is really important. Yeah. 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 Um, let's see, how are we doing on time here, Lex? I know we're getting close to your family getting home. <laughs> uh, five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, maybe I'll just turn it back over to you. Like, is there anything that you just kind of wanted to leave with or summarize? Um, I could toss something at you if you want, but I'll, I'll leave it to you first. Sure. Um, I think it's really key for, for people to bring curiosity to the space. And the space isn't just crypto. I think the space is, it's to bring curiosity to, um, to their work and to ask, like, how can it be better? And not everybody is necessarily in, in that position of privilege, because if you're trying to build a business and you're worried about your costs and like, you're just trying to connect the dots, right. And get the thing up and running, like you might not have the bandwidth to ask existential questions. Yeah. But, but for, for, for those that have a curiosity, I think it's just such a unbelievable gift to be in the business right now, because you, there is more new stuff than ever before. And it is extremely complicated. And so for the average person to get clarity, reassurance, and to get somebody on their side is a huge, huge value. And I think the only way that you can incorporate that type of new information is to, is to be curious about why it's happening and to try to understand the reasons for it. Um, and I think that that opens up a growth opportunity for, for anyone that takes on that mindset. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that. Yeah. Your listeners no, it does. Engage with that. Um, maybe one last quick, like easy one. If you're a financial advisor, uh, what sort of resources are you following just to stay, you know, up to date on the industry? Any good follows, publications, things you'd recommend? Yeah. Um, I think there is now actually quite a bit. Um, I would, um, there, there are some great certifications, which is the digital asset, um, uh, financial professional council is, is got a certification program that's worth is, checking is, out. Is that Rick Edelman's? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but, but, and then the, um, I happen to do a part of it. So that's, that's why I plug it. You know, I think, <laughs> I think companies like, um, like on ramp, um, sure. and other Eagle Brook, those, those types of companies yeah. are just going to find like-minded people. Um, there's actually a financial planning DAO that I encountered, um, okay. which, which is cool, which again, it's just going to be a group of other, um, like-minded advisor. People. Yeah. 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 From whom you're going to learn. And then this isn't a thing you learn in a book or in a class. This is a thing that you spend a couple experience. of years just like reading the internet, you know, yeah. and, <laughs> and, and making personal mistakes about uh, how to use it and all of that. So yeah. the only way to really go there is to do, um, you know, from my side, I write a newsletter called the FinTech Blueprint. So I talk yeah. about the intersection of um, digital wealth and uh, DeFi and Web3 and FinTech and traditional finance and macroeconomics. Yeah. Because, um, you know, end of the day, I think all this stuff is very deeply connected. Yeah. Cool. Well, maybe let's uh, leave it there. I mean, do you have social profiles people can give you a follow or obviously go check out the FinTech Blueprint? I subscribe to that. It's great. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. Um, you can follow me on Lex Oakland uh, on Twitter or LinkedIn. And then also grab MetaMask at MetaMask.io for, for your Ethereum <laughs> for uh, all your, needs. Yeah. All your Web3 digital experience needs. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Let's, uh, let's leave it there. Um, thanks for joining today, Lex. And uh, 
uh, let's see, where's my stop record button? It's around here somewhere. <laughs> but uh, thanks for joining and um, would love to have you back anytime. So uh, we'll leave it there. Cheers. Talk to you later.